The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, we have a very interesting show. Our guests today are Todd Wider and Jed Wider, who have each been nominated by the Producers Guild of America for Outstanding Producer of Documentary Theatrical Motion Pictures. And um, Todd is a graduate of Columbia University. He trained as a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, and he is... Um, He was active in the passage of the Women's Health and Cancer Act of 1998, federal legislation that was signed into law by President Clinton, which mandated insurance coverage for breast cancer reconstruction was named, um, and he was also named for his patient. He was also a volunteer surgeon for the Victim Services, an organization providing plastic surgery to victims of abuse, and was a volunteer surgeon at Ground Zero after September 11th. Uh, 2001 attacks on New York City. Um, Jed Wilder is a graduate of Princeton, I believe, um, School of Public and International Affairs, and he is also a graduate of uh, University School of Law. He's a partner in a prominent international law firm in New York and a board member of the not-for-profit New York Volunteer. Um, I'm sorry, this didn't come out on my um, paper, but you both didn't come to filmmaking as your primary careers, as, as obviously you're both been very successful in other careers. So um, how did you decide to make um, documentaries? And then we'll talk a little bit about your new documentary, which um, actually takes place here in New Hampshire. So um, we're all really interested in it. Um, so I, I guess Todd or Jed, who would like to go first? Well, I can can go. Both Jed and I had studied uh, film uh, in college. Actually, we both went to undergraduate at Princeton, and we both had taken a number of film classes. And so we always had film film history and filmmaking as an interest of ours. Uh, I remember growing up, you know, with our father was sort of a film buff, and we would have these sort of lengthy debates about film and film history and whatnot at the dinner table. So film and filmmaking and film history are always sort of a part of our background and upbringing. And I think we, we each sort of per, per, you know, pursued sort of different professional careers briefly, you know, for a certain period of time. But then we wound up going back to uh, a great love of filmmaking. Um, we began our, our documentary career uh, almost about, I think, a little over 15 years ago with our first film, which is called Beyond Conviction, which is about truth and reconciliation uh, in a Pennsylvania prison program, an experimental program based on a South African model of bringing together victims of major crimes or their families and perpetrators in an, in an attempt to gain greater understanding 
uh, and give a, a measure of restorative justice to the victims and their families. So that was our first documentary, and that film did quite well. It got very good reviews, and it was seen all over the country, and it wound up going to different interesting film festivals, and I wound up getting on Oprah, and that was our first, you know, uh, taste of documentary filmmaking. Uh, she had produced some other feature films prior to that, but this was our first documentary filmmaking, and we saw this sort of uh, socio-political resonance that the film had on those that saw it and those that heard about it, and, and actually we sort of witnessed firsthand the power of a film to sort of change, to change things in a positive way, you know? So I would say we were uh, bitten a bit by the documentary book, and uh, we began uh, with that film, and then we've uh, produced uh, something like 17 or so films to the current date, uh, you know, very active in the space, and, um, and some of the films have, have done quite well and, and achieved significant critical acclaim. Uh, one of the films that we, we helped produce was a film called Taxi to the Dark Side, which uh, was directed by Alex Gibney, which won an Academy Award for Best Documentary a couple of years ago, and we also produced a film called Mia Maxima Culpa, Silence in the House of God, which you might know that was on HBO recently. That's about uh, the, the abuses in the, in the uh, Catholic Church, in particular the case of the deaf children in Wisconsin that were abused by Father Murphy. And it was an interesting sort of perceptive uh, uh, resonant film. We produced another film called Semperfy Always Faithful, which is uh, a film about the largest case of water contamination in American history, which occurred at the uh, Camp Lejeune military base in North Carolina. And that film focuses on a, uh, a, a gentleman who was in the Marines by the name of uh, Jerry Ensminger, who's really an American hero, whose daughter unfortunately died when she was 11 or so of leukemia, and he went on a, a very long mission to find out why and who was responsible for this. And he uncovers this sort of great scandal uh, and cover-up of this, of this case of war contamination. And that film actually wound up in, in legislation uh, with, with laws signed in the, white, in the Oval Office by President Obama, and the law that was signed, which mandates that the victims of those of that war contamination get coverage and, and have insurance benefits, that law is actually named the Janie Enzinger Law. So that's an example of how a documentary can have a real measurable change on our society in a positive manner. Uh, and we, you know, this is why I think we are so attracted to uh, the documentary space because you can have th this real sort of this sort of political, social political resonance, you know, and, and make people aware of issues that are, are important. And then uh, people sometimes change their opinion about things or move in a certain direction. And you can affect, you know, you can make the, the society a little bit better in a way. So I think that that's really why we went towards documentaries. Well, certainly your new film, God Knows Where I Am, speaks to what I hope is going to be changed in our mental health system coming from New Hampshire um, this was the experience of a woman, Linda Bishop, who was determined to stay free of the mental health system after er her early release from a three-year commitment to New Hampshire State Hospital. Instead, she became a prisoner of her own mind, a fate which she documents in one of the most evocative and chilling accounts of mental illness and our and our system's failure to protect those suffering from it. And I just wanted to, to share with our listeners in New Hampshire, there's a an ability for someone who has been deemed um, after thorough documentation to be unable to care for themselves. They can be committed to the state hospital for up to three years, and then they can be conditionally released to a mental health center. And those conditions of release 
um, are actually kind of similar to what somebody has to do to stay out of jail to be on parole. They have to take their meds. They have to do certain things. And as long as they do that within the safety of the mental health system, they remain in the community. This enables people to get, in theory, um, quick intervention if they start to become symptomatic and are unable to take care of themselves. So, um, Obviously, this failed for Linda Bishop, and maybe you could begin to talk about how did you get, how did you hear about her, and how did you get interested in this? Um, uh, we, yeah, uh, this is this is Jed. Uh, I'll I'll speak to this. We, we had uh, my brother and I had had a uh, experience uh, with a uh, with a homeless man in in New York City, which is where we live, uh, a number of years ago, uh, who uh, was mentally ill, and my brother had. Uh, Tried to uh, tried to help him by contacting the police and trying to get him uh, assistance uh, with um, a number of uh, mental health professionals uh, in New York uh, to no avail. And um, through that process, uh, we decided that we really wanted to focus on uh, the issues involving uh, um, society's treatment um, of the homeless and of Mentally ill, and a large percentage of, of homeless people um, are, are are in fact mentally ill. And in a city where we come from, where you know the mayor is telling us there are approximately sixty five thousand homeless people, and the reality is that it's probably three times that amount, uh, which is also not isolated, obviously, to New York, but is a problem in every major uh, city and, and 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 certainly small cities around uh, all of North America. Um, you know, we, we came to a conclusion that, you know, we, we didn't like what we were seeing. We didn't like the way that society is handling um, uh, the issues uh, involving uh, homeless people around around this country um, and also the mentally ill and the, the failure to provide for proper safety nets and adequate uh, assistance and also the failure to, uh, of, uh, to, to, to really include families in the way that uh, we assist uh, the mentally ill uh, really prompted us to want to do a film uh, on those topics. And um, uh, several years ago, we came across a story uh, that had been written by a writer uh, in the New Yorker, Rachel Aviv, uh, that specifically addressed the issues involving Linda Bishop and her story. Um, and that prompted us uh, to want to reach out uh, to uh, Linda's sister, Joan, who lives in New Hampshire, uh, Linda's daughter, Caitlin, who also lives in New Hampshire as well. We spent a significant amount of time with them uh, exploring the story, and, uh, Linda's background, Linda's journey. Uh, she kept a journal, spent a significant amount of time uh, with the journal, uh, reading letters and learning really about Linda's uh, Linda's background, Linda's story, what Linda um, encountered um, when she was um, uh, diagnosed uh, as being mentally ill, and the, the years subsequent to that initial diagnosis, um, uh, and um, the types of treatment uh, that she had, did not have how she rejected treatment, accepted treatment during the course of her life and ultimately found her way into uh, the criminal justice system and ultimately into the state psychiatric uh, hospital uh, where she was subsequently released. 
and which really brought us to uh, which brought us to our student article itself is really more of a polemic that really addressed the issues of under what circumstances should a mentally ill patient uh, be forcibly treated or not forcibly treated, and the article really dealt with many of the civil liberty uh, civil liberty issues, um, uh, both from a social perspective but also from a legal perspective. The story that we told uh, was more of a personal story. Uh, we told it from the first person. Uh, we we used uh, Linda's voice, Linda's words uh, in her journal to basically repaint her life. Uh, repaint her story, and then ultimately repaint um, her journey uh, into the uh, uh, into the state psychiatric hospital and out of the state psychiatric hospital, which eventually brought her uh, to a camp, a camp for the homeless, um, and uh, and ultimately to an abandoned farmhouse in New Hampshire, uh, where she uh, where she lived for four months. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about. Um their film, God Knows Where I Am. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back to One Hour of Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And our guests are Todd Weider and Jess Weider. I'm sorry, Jed Weider, who are both the producers and directors of a new documentary called God Knows Where I Am. And this documentary features the experience of a woman here in New Hampshire, Linda Bishop, with her mental illness and her subsequent um, experiences with uh, the treatment system and then being on her own. Um, Could you give us a little background as to who Linda was and um, what she was like? Uh, sure. I mean, this is Todd. I guess I could get a little bit check and can jump in. So, so Linda Bishop was was born out of out of New Hampshire. I believe she was from New York originally, uh, Long Island, and she moved to New Hampshire with her uh, sister Joan, who's a little bit older than her, when she was a small child. So she basically grew up in New Hampshire and spent her life there. And uh, she had gone to University of New Hampshire. Uh, she was an art major. Uh, she loved uh, visual things. She was very artistic. Uh, she loved the outdoors. She liked to be outside. Uh, she she had a daughter. She was married for a short time. She had a daughter named Caitlin, and uh, she raised Caitlin. And she enjoyed you know cooking things with Caitlin and, and bringing Caitlin outside and showing her nature. And she loved to read books. She liked to read to Caitlin. Uh, she had a number of very good friends. Um, you know she had a lot of people that cared and loved and loved her, cared for her and loved her. She was very funny. She had a great sense of humor. Uh, and she was sort of the life of the party for a time. And, you know, she, sometime we, 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 we come to learn, uh, sometime when she was in her forties, she began to suffer from symptoms that are in retrospect, clearly consistent with bipolar disease. Uh, and at one point, uh, she told her daughter that, um, you know, that she was going to go meet with the governor and she marched out of the house and sort of disappeared for a while. She was found upstate, and she was then institutionalized for, for a short period of time in, in a mental facility, and she was probably initially misdiagnosed with, with schizophrenia, uh, and then for the next 10 years or so, she was in and out of hospitals and or prison, uh, incarcerated intermittently in, in different institutions, medicated, went on and off medication, uh, and probably she had bipolar uh, disease with with paranoid ideation and some psychosis. So there was some delusionality to the way that she, she would think about things, and there was certainly some paranoia, and her moods would go up and down. She was on medications uh, such as lithium that are mood stabilizers for bipolar, and I believe at some point she was also on Depakote, and she was also on intermittently different antipsychotics. So she was on uh, medications that are consistent with someone being treated for bipolar with, as I said, psychotic and also some paranoid ideation. And um, at one point, she got into, um, you know, and she was also, she's also in, before I get into the, the, where, we, where we pick up, but she uh, was intermittently homeless, unfortunately. She also was intermittently homeless. And, and what you see classically is, uh, you know, in her case, she got divorced. She wound up working in a, an, actually a Chinese restaurant as a waitress. There was more and more stressors in her life. Uh, she was, sort of couldn't handle them as well, and she began to, mentally began to deteriorate. That's sort of when she had her first sort of break with reality. And from then on, it was sort of like a ping pong ball in a way, sometimes off medication, sometimes on. She was better on the medication, worse off. She'd go for periods where she was medicated. She'd feel better, as is unfortunately so often with people with diseases like this. They feel better, so they feel, hey, I'm cured. I don't need to take medication anymore. Then they go off the medication, and then they unfortunately get worse. That That's common in, in these kinds of situations. And so she 
you know, she went off the medication, got worse, and there was a point where um, she went back on the medication, was feeling somewhat better. Then she had to go down to Florida to take care of her father, who was quite ill, and she was afraid that her father would call out for her at night. So she decided, and, and she was afraid that she would be uptunded and too sleepy by the medication, which sometimes the medication does do. Different kinds of medication, as you know, uh, in that that act on, act on that axis in the brain do cause sleepiness, you know, and drowsiness. So she was afraid if her father called out for her at night, she might not be able to hear him. So she decided to make the decision to get off the medication then, and that sort of began a cascade downwards, and it led to her being arrested for getting into an altercation with a policeman. And she was brought in, and then the, the court decided she would be uh, mandatorily institutionalized for up to three years. So she was brought to the state mental facility where she was placed. And, um, you know, and that, that's where we pick it up, Jed, if you want to jump in here and sort of uh, leave, the, leave the audience for the rest of what happened. So this was in New Hampshire? Or Florida? Yes. No, this is in New Hampshire. This is in New Hampshire. Yeah, this was in New Hampshire. Um the uh, uh, so what happened was she uh, she came before uh, a judge who uh, was making determination once she was in the state psychiatric hospital uh, where she had been sentenced for up to three years and had been refusing treatment uh, for uh, for two years um, and they had encouraged her sister Joan to file a petition to be named guardian uh, for Linda. Um, and, um, unfortunately, uh, Linda appeared in court on the day of the hearing. She seemed somewhat lucid, uh, at that hearing, the judge made a determination that, um, uh, Linda was fine. Uh, she could make a rational, uh, a set of rational decisions on her behalf, did not require a guardian to make medical decisions for her. The, uh, petition was denied. Uh, and at that point, uh, there really wasn't much recourse left uh, for the family members uh, with respect to Linda's refusal to be treated at the state psychiatric hospital. Um, so the state hospital made a decision uh, after that point to unconditionally uh, release uh, Linda, uh, really without any full plan. Uh, whatsoever, really without an adequate safety net for her. And in early October, several years ago, uh, Linda was allowed to, um, uh, Linda was allowed to walk basically right at the front door of the state psychiatric hospital, which she did. And she wandered, uh, down a path, eventually came to an area, uh, fairly close to the state psychiatric hospital. Uh, which was uh, loosely called Hoboville. It's an area where many homeless people congregated. Uh, she spent several days there. And from there, uh, she made her way uh, into the woods uh, and eventually came to an abandoned farmhouse. Uh, Linda had grown up uh, working on farms. She was very familiar uh, with how farms operated. She was very knowledgeable with regard to animals and plants. Um, she loved uh, astronomy. Uh, she loved food. Uh, she loved collecting corn from the farm and racing it right back into the kitchen as quickly as she could to have uh, as fresh corn as possible. Um, and uh, she came to this 
this farmhouse and in you know any other uh, in any other life that she may have led without mental illness, this would have been really her Eden. This would have been an ideal place for her to live. Uh, and she broke into this farmhouse, a farmhouse that had been in existence for over 200 years. Um, and uh, it was owned by a brother and a sister who had grown up in that home. Uh, but since then, it was basically abandoned. They were trying to sell it. The uh, farmhouse was locked. It was looked after by neighbors periodically, uh, just checking from the outside to make sure everything seemed okay. And the brother and sister would drive about an hour and a half down to the farmhouse periodically every several months to check on the farmhouse to make sure everything was okay. Uh, Linda broke into the farmhouse, and she proceeded to live there in that farmhouse uh, for close to about four months. Um, and uh, she, uh, she found in the farmhouse, in the attic, uh, a chair uh, that she positioned in front of a window that faced the backyard on basically overlooked almost 200, 200 acres of, uh, of land. And at night, she would go out and she would collect apples from an apple orchard, uh, a series of apple orchards that sat in the, uh, uh, the back of the property, and she collected hundreds of apples. She would go down to the brook that ran through the property and collect water from the brook. Uh, she would sit in the chair up in the attic, and she would read uh, books that she had found uh, in the attic that had belonged to uh, the brother and sister who, uh, who had grown up in that home. Um, and... Uh, she was full of, uh, she was full of life. Uh, she was an art history major. She was incredibly intelligent. Um, and she also loved to read and she, she uh, sat there eating apples, looking out the window, um, and making, uh, really, the, um, uh, quite, uh, poetic, uh, interesting, intelligent observation, uh, during the course of her day. Um, she, uh, kept a journal. Uh, of every day that she lived in that farmhouse. Um, and uh, that journal is filled with her observations as to where she was, what the house looked like, what she was seeing outside the window, red robins uh, landing on branches, um, other types of birds landing on lilac branches, um, observations with respect to uh, a baby deer that she saw that she thought was looking for uh, her mother. Um, as they were attempting to avoid hunters. Um, and she made observations with respect to uh, astronomy. Um, and as the winter set and, and the temperature began to drop, um, her food supply, which consisted of hundreds of apples, uh, began to diminish. And the apples that she could find uh, really uh, were no longer there. Um, and she became too weak, too tired to leave the farmhouse uh, in, uh, really in search of food. She became too weak to search for water down in the brook, collect water down in the brook. She started to melt icicles uh, off of the windowsill uh, in a bucket that she kept that she drank from. Um, and uh, eventually she began to run out of food. Winter set in. This was the, one of the coldest winters ever on record. Uh, in New Hampshire, the amount of snowfall was tremendous, um, and there was no heat uh, in the house. There was a small pilot light that remained lit, uh, mistakenly, actually, remained lit 
uh, and that caused a small amount of heat um, below several floorboards uh, in the first floor of the farmhouse. And Linda uh, would, would, would huddle herself on these floorboards that were mi- mildly warm um, under uh, blankets under blankets that had been found in, in the uh, 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 inside the farmhouse. Um, this is it's it's both tragic and fascinating at the same time. And we'll be right back after this break to hear more about Linda's journey. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded with information daily about happy life strategies, beauty products, and business success ideas. Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. Shelly will explore and recommend proven business ideas as well as show you how to use the law of attraction to create health, happiness, and a prosperous business. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour of Time. Our guests today are Todd Weider and Jed Weider, who are the directors and producers of the new documentary called God Knows Where I Am about Linda Bishop, a woman here in New Hampshire who seemingly fell between the cracks um, after she was discharged from the state psychiatric hospital. And do you want to um, kind of continue with your with our um, story of Linda and where she, how she ended up and... Sure. So, um, 
as 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 the winter set in, which is as I was saying, one of the coldest winters on record in New Hampshire. She began to run out of her food supply. She began to run out run out of apples. Yeah, became too tired, um, uh, and 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 really too exhausted uh, to uh, walk down to the brook that ran through the property to collect water. She began to uh, melt icicles in a bucket that she kept icicles from the windowsill. Um, but eventually, she began to fully uh, run out of food, and um, she had during the course of the journal. Um, uh, she was a she was really a lover of of food. She loved to cook. Um, the hungrier she became, the more she began to think about food. She wrote many full recipes of meals that she had wanted to cook, uh, that she envisioned cooking um, uh, uh, in the journal. Um, and she envisioned those meals as she was really running out completely of her of of her food supply. So as she as she went from over 300 apples down to 200, 100, down to to zero, um, she then started to count down the days uh, that she was not eating, um, and uh, she wrote about that uh, in her journal. She wrote about her fears. Uh, she wrote about her impending uh, starvation. Um, she also wrote some very interesting passages, religious passages. Uh, about God, about Jesus, um, uh, and uh, God finding her, God saving her, Jesus saving her. Um, she envisioned um, a, a gentleman who she had met um, while waitressing in a Chinese restaurant, which is how she supported herself. Uh, she was a single mother supporting her daughter uh, and had taken a job of waitressing and had been working shifts of close to 12 hours at a time which, which was fairly stressful, her daughter, uh, her daughter had said, um, uh, which may have been one of the triggers uh, for, uh, for, for her mental illness uh, at, at, at one point in her life. Um, but she, um, uh, she had uh, met a gentleman uh, who was married, who had children, would come into the restaurant with his family, um, and she somehow had envisioned him being her husband. So she... Uh, she writes it, which was clearly delusional. Um, he had uh, he had hardly spoken to her uh, in in the restaurant, but she had created this delusion, um, you know, in in her in in her mind that this was her husband. And she wrote about him. Uh, she wrote about uh, when he was going to come eventually to to rescue her. Eventually, really, uh, the, the, this gentleman's name becomes really fused with 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 Jesus coming to save her. Um, and interestingly enough, she had never really been uh, religious uh, prior to uh, prior to her mental illness really setting in. When she was fully lucid, she really wasn't religious. She was she was very much an atheist. But um, as she finds herself in, in in this situation in this home, this farmhouse by herself, um, she uh, she begins to speak very religiously, um, and eventually. Uh, the, the final passage that she writes in the journal uh, is in January of the following year. Um, she'd been there for four months. She talks about how she had not had food uh, for 35 days up until that point. That's the last journal that appears um, uh, uh, in her journal. And um, a passerby walks by the house several months later 
uh, in the springtime uh, is looking at the farmhouse potentially to buy it uh, and walks by uh, the bay window uh, in the farmhouse, looks through the window, and there's a body um, seen in the living room. He realizes that's a person. He calls the police, and the police come to inspect, and they find the body there. They find this journal. They don't know who she is. They begin to read through this journal, um, and that's really when her story uh, is... um, uh, is uh, becomes clear to to the public, to the inspectors, to the detectives who are trying to figure out uh, who she was, where she came from, how she died, um, and the film is set um, at that point uh, really as a um, uh, as a mystery almost uh, in the beginning of uh, of the documentary, uh, and then slowly the film begins to unfold into uh, a full examination of Linda's life, what happened to Linda, um, uh, how she came to the state psychiatric hospital, uh, how she was released, what those circumstances were. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, in summary, really the story uh, that we tell um, with, respect to, uh, with respect to Linda Bishop's story. How is it that no one missed her? I mean, she had a daughter, she had a sister, she had people in her life. How is it that nobody... Wondered where she was. Well, they, they you know, due to the privacy laws, uh, which in our opinion are are a little bit, uh, you know, frankly uh, counterproductive and uh, maddening, frankly at times. I mean, certainly in this case they were. Uh, she uh, did not allow anyone to know uh, where she was. She didn't sign any releases, so the daughter and sister were not allowed to know her status at the hospital. So if they would call and say. How's my sister doing? The hospital would say we can we cannot confirm or deny that she's here. So, the, the, to their knowledge, she had been institutionalized. They thought she was at a safe place. It actually came as a great surprise to the sister later to have learned that she, in fact, had been discharged and was even in this farmhouse starving to death. The sister had no idea she was she was out of the hospital. She thought she was still in the hospital. And and the most tragic thing, I mean, among many sort of tragic elements of the story, is that. Despite the fact that the farmhouse sits on 100 acres from one side of it, on the other side of it sits on a main road. And the sister literally drove back in front, uh, to and forth from work, and back in front of that house, maybe 50 or 100 times during the period she was, her own sister was there in that house, never knowing <clears throat> that she was there. All she had to do was stop and pick her up, you know. So Linda, Linda did a good job of hiding herself in the, in the farmhouse. You know, again, she had a certain amount of paranoia with her illness. And I think that was exacerbated by the fact that she was starving and also also that she was obviously on no medication. So there was a certain paranoid sort of component to her, her mental illness, and that paranoia prevented her from simply uh, opening the door and leaving the house, you know. So in addition to the complications of the privacy laws, what else did you discover about the system in regards to Linda's experience? Well, I think there are many things that are that are wrong with our system. I mean, as Jet said earlier, uh, you know, our country is inundated with homeless people uh, that are by and large mentally ill. I mean, I don't care what the statistics are. The fact is most people that are home, uh, homeless are mentally ill. Either they got to homelessness out of being mentally ill with drug or alcohol addiction as a way of self-medicating their illness, or they got to homelessness through economic deprivation and hardship, and then they, they became mentally ill because I don't think most homeless people in the United States are not clinically depressed. I can't imagine 
being homeless is somehow a liberating and happy experience. I mean, frankly, so those people that you see that are homeless on the streets of the cities that you guys live in and we live in and elsewhere are probably have a certain large dose of mental illness. As do many of the prisoners in our prison system. Mental illness is, is very common in our prison system. In fact, our prison system has essentially been turned into a, a, a sort of tertiary care treatment device for, for the mentally ill as opposed to treating them in a mental facility. They're being treated in, in the prison system, and that's not really the most effective way to treat mental illness. So I think, you know, you learn a lot when you, when you, certainly we learn a lot of filmmakers, but also you learn a lot by just going to the film. I think you learn about the sensitivity that seems lacking often in treating people with, 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 in a situation like this, because after all, every, every homeless person that you might encounter on the street at one point had a mother and a father, may have had a, a sister or brother, may have had children, may have, maybe a wife or a husband or a significant other, probably was loved and had family members at some point. They certainly didn't begin life in homelessness. That's fairly unusual in our country. Not that unusual in other countries, but in our country, it's fairly unusual to be born into homelessness. They usually wind up homeless from another point, and they've descended to homelessness. So, but I would argue, I think we both would, that, you know, it's a problem that for some reason we, we seem to collectively ignore. You know, if you poll, we, we've shown the film in numerous film festivals now, maybe 15 or 16, it's been shown all around the country, and it's going to be seen in a number of other festivals before it's theatrically released. But if you randomly polled the audience, I guarantee you that, you know, 99.9% of them would say, we're not happy with the way the homeless are treated in the United States. But yet, you know, if we have the individual uh, desire to change things, how come we can't muster the collective desire to make the system change? You know, why is that? We live in a, an incredibly powerful and wealthy country capable of incredible generosity, frankly. I mean, the United States can, has, has been an incredibly generous uh, uh, country in many respects. Its people are very generous and caring, actually, uh, when you compare the, the acts of people here to other, to other places. But I, I think given such a powerful nation um, with such vast wealth, you know, after all, in New York City, people make untold amounts of money in our city, you know, just crazy money people can make. Yet the city is teeming with homeless people, teeming with them. Uh, every corner, you know, it seems as another homeless person, homeless woman, homeless man, you know, sort of wandering around lost, often extremely delusional in another world, you know. And if you even stop to offer them food or whatnot, they're, they're so delusional they don't even know what, that you're talking to them often. That was certainly the experience of the gentleman that, I, that you know, I found that had broken into where I live. Um, and, you know, so you have the situation where you have a powerful country and you have individual desire on the part of the citizenry to change this. The, the, you know, the citizens of our country, I'm sure, by and large, don't think this is okay. Yet we can't muster the sort of collective strength to... Move, move the nation in a direction where we, we do not accept this. You know, in, in our city, the mayor, for example, has said publicly, well, everyone has the right to sleep on a park bench. Well, that may be true, but is that okay? You know, is that okay that people sleep on a park bench? Is that really a rational choice? I would say absolutely it is not. You know, uh, you, know if you, you do not have free will if your mind is not free. You know, it's the same old adage of the person on the bridge jumping, right? Should we allow that person to jump? That's actually illegal. You arrest someone when they're doing that, and you bring them generally to a hospital. They're hospitalized. So what really is the difference between jumping off a bridge or not taking medication and starving to death in a house? It's, it's very similar. It's just a slower way of dying, right? So if we judge that it's not okay for a person to commit suicide by jumping off a bridge, why should a person be able to wander the streets of New York, homeless, not eating, not sleeping, 
um, endangering, endangering their own them, themselves, endangering, frankly, others, uh, why should that be acceptable? That should not be acceptable. I mean, any humane society would deem that to be not right. So I think we need, right. you know, we need, we'll you know, right we need to after you know, this commercial. Sure. We'll, be, we'll, we'll let you finish your thought right after this commercial. Great. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. When a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened to her. Friends and family often don't know what to do for support, not to mention the patient herself. That's where Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio comes in. Join Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin, breast cancer survivors and advocates. They help by providing inspiration, information, and most of all, hope. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. We have Todd Weider and Jed Weider on our show today who are the directors and producers of a brand new documentary called God Knows Where I Am about Linda Bishop and her experience here in New Hampshire after she was um, declared uh, competent and discharged from the state hospital. And before we went to break, you were making a great, some really great points. And one of the ones that I just wanted to um, reiterate was the laws that we have in place make no sense for people. As you said, it's illegal to jump off a bridge, but you can slowly starve to death in a, in a farmhouse or you can, it's okay not to take your medicine. And, you know, I, I'm a registered nurse. And I'm just going to say that in a medical emergency, we do things to people all the time that we don't have consent for 
that um, we we do procedures on people that they're not being informed about. Somebody drops from a heart attack or, you know, they have a seizure or whatever, 911 gets called. People get things done to them, but we don't have the same psychiatric response to acutely ill people that have these brain diseases. And in New Hampshire, what happens is, is that, you know, you're, it's a legal procedure that you have to go through to get somebody hospitalized. The sheriff comes, put them in shackles, takes them to the hospital, and then if they're lucky, they'll get a bed. I mean, we've lost beds in New Hampshire just since Linda was, was in the hospital. Uh-huh. You may end up in an emergency room for three days and, and literally a room with no pictures. I mean, you know, it's, it's, the system is just not good. I mean, I think this, you know, the way to address this is you need to start with leadership at the highest levels in terms of allocation of resources and how important we, we, we want to make this for our nation, for our fellow, fellow citizenry. You know, we are a, uh, we should be a country of concerned people. I mean, that, I think that's the base of any humane society that you're evolving towards a place that it is the betterment of all, not the very few, but the betterment of all, you know, or certainly the majority, you know, that are, and, and certainly the protection and betterment of those that are the most vulnerable and the sickest and those that have no lobby. Those should be the people that, in a way, are the most innocent and should be the most protected. And certainly I'd argue that the homeless and the severely mentally ill fall into that category. They deserve the most protection. They are the most vulnerable and they deserve the most care because they cannot care for themselves. So they certainly do not deserve to be ignored or taken for granted or, frankly, uh, whitewashed with this sort of, you know, pseudo-libertarian label of, well, they made their own choice. You know, they, they, this is the choice they made. You know, we've encountered people along the road that said, well, Linda went there because she wanted to die, and it's after all, the motto of the state is live free and die, and she made a choice to die there, and that was her choice, and we should respect it. That was her independent spirit. And, you know, I would, I would argue strongly that is not the choice that she made. It, her, her diary was not a suicidal diary. The medical examiner who reviewed the case in quite some detail and was uh, moved by this case, more than any other, he said, in his entire career, states clearly on the film that this is not a suicide. That is not what happened here. And, uh, you know, it, th- th- those kind of things are not, are not okay. This person did not choose to starve to death in a building because she was too afraid to open uh, the front door and walk out. She was a victim of a uh, treacherous and, uh, you know, very difficult disease. And this disease wrecks havoc on on not only victims, but uh, the, those that suffer, but also family members, and it wrecks havoc on our economy. You know, mental illness costs the American taxpayer an enormous amount of money. In, in many ways that you don't immediately see clearly, you know. I mean, for example, in Linda's case, Linda was hospitalized and spent over a year or so in that hospital, and Medicaid paid the bill of that hospital. That hospitalization probably cost them, you know, a million dollars. And to have her discharged to nothingness and die starving in the house, you might ask, you know, legitimately, what was the point of that? You know, what, what was gained by that? You know, how did that help? And, you know, if you think about the, the cost of dealing with the, the end stage of mental illness, uh, a homeless man gets hit by a car, a homeless man, uh, you know, commits a, an act of violence against another person, both people are injured, a homeless man winds up in a hospital with diabetes, has an amputation, you know, people like me want to take care of their wounds for years and years, Millions and billions of dollars are being drained out of the system in dealing with these kind of situations. It would be far cheaper, I bet you, if someone studied this, it would be far cheaper to try to house people humanely, feed them, give them shelter, 
give them meaningful, uh, you know, ways of employing, you know, employment if they can, if they can suitable for employment, they're giving them medication that they need and giving them care. Uh, you know, we did another film a number of years ago called Kicking It about the Homeless Soccer League, which is an international league of homeless people um, that's organized in, in different countries and they play soccer. And we, when we were initially pitched this film, this is the film Jed and I produced, we thought, well, this sounds crazy. Why don't you just help pay for, home, for housing for homeless people instead of, you know, making a soccer league? But it turns out that those people that join that soccer league, a very large percentage of them, I think over 80%, wind up not being homeless. They're plugged back into a society of caring people. They wind up seeking out employment. Their lives are changed by that, by that societal communal experience. And I think that that would be the case with many people in these situations. But I think that for whatever reason, uh, we can't sort of get it together as, as a society. As we talked about before in our own city, you know, our mayor argues that, um, you know, it's okay to, to sleep on, you know, anyone is entitled to sleep on a park bench. It's not illegal. Anyone has the right to do that. But, I sort of would argue that why should that right be accorded? I don't, I don't think that's really appropriate. And, I, and I'm not talking about criminalizing homelessness. I'm, I'm talking about making it not acceptable for the rest of us and therefore doing something and intervening and fixing it. You know, if we should gather the homeless people together in New York and, and bring them to a place that they are housed in a humane manner. Many homeless people in the city, in New York City, are afraid to go to a shelter because they're afraid that they will be um, hurt in a shelter. And in truth... Some of the shelters in New York City are not very safe, you know, and those people that, that feel very vulnerable and also are not often a sound mind are afraid to go to those shelters, you know, and they don't want to stay there. But what how will our, were, how were, our listeners better? know when the film is out and where they can go to watch it? How can they find out more about your film? Well, they the can go is, on the uh, website, you know, godknowswhereiam.com. Uh, it's www.godknowswhereiam.com. And uh, we give frequent updates as to where the film is playing in festivals, and we'll be also giving updates as to when and where they'll be able to see the film in their theaters and then later on cable and hopefully on television. Thank you both for um, being with us this past hour, and thank you for your passion. Um, I certainly hope that this has the same result as some of your other documentaries, and we can start changing the conversation about folks that have mental illness and, and that are homeless. So thank you both. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. I really appreciate it. Have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.